0: When you go to a talk therapy session, there are two chairs. Most of the time, every therapist I've been to, certainly, you can pick the chair you want, usually, and the therapist takes the other one. In this episode, I'm talking to a person who sits in both chairs at different times. It's the Hilarious World of Depression. I'm John Moe.
1: I'm Lori Gottlieb. I'm a psychotherapist and the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and I am in the NPR studios in Los Angeles.
0: Lori Gottlieb's book has sold a lot of copies. People like to hear what a therapist is thinking beyond the empathetic facial expression and probing open questions. What I loved about it is that it brings home the idea that therapy is ultimately about people connecting to try to figure things out. The two people have their roles, client and practitioner, but it's a collaboration. Lori says that for her, Mental health and it not being quite right goes way back.
1: I was, you know, when I was younger, I struggled a lot. And I, um, you know, I, I didn't realize that I was depressed when I was younger. I just... I just thought, you know, I'm I'm moody or I'm I was I was difficult. Uh but I I was depressed a lot and I, you know, but I was a very functional depressed person. So I think that's why people didn't realize that I was depressed in the sense that I functioned very well. You know, I was I was involved in things at school. I did very well in school. Um I had friends. So I think that it was it was really an internal experience of being depressed.
0: Did you know when you were younger that this is depression or did you just no. think this is what being alive feels like?
1: I thought this is what being me feels like. Like I knew that other people probably didn't feel the same way that I did. Um, you know, that I, I felt like I was, quote unquote, too sensitive or... <laughs> um, you know those kinds of things that you know like i i just i absorb you worry things too much. i yeah. i worry too much i was i was too hard on myself
0: after college it wasn't a beeline to being a therapist more of a bumblebee line
1: Right. So I took the most nonlinear route possible to becoming a therapist. Um, I started off after college working in film, and then I moved over to NBC, where I was doing development for uh, primetime series. And I was working on a show that was new at the time called ER, which you may have heard of and i was really interested in story and the human condition and i got to spend a lot of time in a real er with our consultant on the show who was a physician who was there to make sure that our trauma scenes were choreographed accurately and all of that and i i really liked being there i felt like there was one thing to kind of Tell fictional stories, and it was another to see real life happen right in front of you. And he kept saying to me, "You know, I think you like this better than your day job. Maybe you should go to medical school." And I was like, "I'm not going to medical school," (laughs) but I went to medical school. (laughs) And I, when I got there, it was I was up at Stanford, which was the like the whole dot com scene at the time, right before the bust. And managed care was coming into the medical system, and a lot of my professors who loved what they did were saying, "You know, you really like." spending time with your patients, and it's a really different model now. And I ended up leaving medical school to become a journalist where I felt like I could help people to tell their stories because I was so interested in stories.
0: While working as a journalist, Lori decides to have a baby, uses a sperm donor, gets pregnant, and gets crushed by postpartum depression.
1: It was intense, it was like I had this baby and I was so happy to be a mom. I had always wanted to be a mom. And so that made it even more confusing for people. It was like you have this baby that you've wanted so badly and here he is and you are like catatonic. And that's what I was like. Mm. I, was, I was like the world was behind glass for me. Um I could not I could not enjoy my child. Um I was going through the motions of taking care of him but I wasn't really there. Um I was crying all the time like when I wasn't just completely catatonic like tears would come out of my eyes but I wasn't feeling anything. I was numb, and the tears were coming out of my eyes, and I could not understand. And everybody was like, oh, yeah, it's really hard being a new mom, and don't worry, you'll get used to it. <laughs> but it wasn't. I knew it was something more than just the rigors of taking care of a newborn. I knew that something really serious was going on. But because everybody was trying to offer support by saying like you'll get used to it and it's really hard and it's really hard for everyone and there these are called baby blues they would say to me these are the baby blues and in uh. 2 weeks the baby blues will be over so i was like counting the days for those 2 weeks to end and the 2 weeks ended and i was still incredibly you know just just i was i was not there and I I couldn't explain it to people because everybody tried to talk me out of it, you know, to say, like, just to normalize my situation when I knew it was not this something was terribly wrong and I needed some other kind of help. And, And the sad thing about my postpartum depression was I never got help. Like I suffered with it for months and months and months until finally it sort of organically lifted. And it was only later. Why didn't you get help? is I didn't didn't know that's what I needed. Everybody was saying like, oh, get somebody to help you with meals, get someone to help you with, you know, watching the baby so you can go take a walk or get sleep, or this is what happens when you don't Mm. get sleep. And all of that, by the way, is true to an extent, right? When we don't get sleep, it affects our mood. When we um, are not getting outside, it affects our mood. When we don't have social support, it affects our mood. All of that is true. But I think that, People were not looking at, you know, what is postpartum depression. Now I think people are much more aware of it. This was a long time ago. But it was really – it made it so much harder because not only was I going through this, but literally every time somebody would say something like that, I would think, what is wrong with me that I can't get out of this? I'm taking all of their advice. I'm doing everything they're saying. And I'm still, I'm not only am I not feeling better, I'm feeling progressively worse. And I felt so horrible on top of that because I'm like, my kid deserves better than this. My kid deserves a mom who's present. Like, why can't I be a good mom? And I felt like I'm being a terrible mother on top of it all.
0: I asked Lori if there's a link between being depressed as a teenager and developing postpartum depression later on.
1: I think that if you probably have experienced earlier depression that maybe you're, you're predisposed to experiencing it later. And some of it might also be environmental. So if you were in an environment where, um, you know, things were hard, and then you experience the stresses of being a new parent, being a parent brings up a lot of childhood stuff. You know, you start to re-experience a lot of your childhood, even just in your body, even if consciously you're not aware of what you're experiencing. So it's probably a combination, Um, and it's probably different for each person. There are a lot of people, by the way, who suffer from depression, who had, you know, really, really nice families and really, you know, like the best kind of parenting they could have, but they had a biological predisposition to it. And there are other people where it's a combination,
0: maybe there's a trauma that's implanted and then your parenting becomes either a reflection of that which is scary or a uh, a sort of refutation of it like you want to do everything differently which is exhausting as well
1: yeah there's a there's a great um essay that was written called the ghost in the nursery by um Selma Freyberg. And it's about how we unconsciously hold on to a lot of the things from our childhood that don't come out again until we're parents. And then we sort of transmit that to our kids if we're not aware of it. So I think it's really important for people to, um, you know, really understand themselves um, before they become parents, because it will catch up with you.
0: We have a link to that essay Lori mentioned on our Facebook. Compounding the postpartum depression for Lori was the isolation that goes along with being a new parent, and she was doing it solo, no partner in the house, just Lori and her son, and things got a bit weird.
1: I was like, I need other adults to talk to. The UPS guy would come every day with all of my deliveries and I would be like, How about those diapers? Do you have kids? And he would literally back away <laughs> to his big brown trek to avoid the conversation with me because I was so desperate for human connection. And um, That's
0: not a great sign, is it? It was
1: not a great <laughs> sign. And then and sometimes he got to the point where he would tiptoe to my door and gently put the package down so I wouldn't hear him. <laughs> I mean, it was it was really pathetic. And then when I started to come out of it, I started to imagine, okay, this thing with the UPS guy has got to stop. Um, You know, like, I need to find... I I realized that something, something wasn't right in my life. I think often depression, anything, anxiety, depression, people are so worried about, oh, no, I'm feeling these feelings that I don't want to feel. And I always say that use your feelings like a compass. They point you in a certain direction. They tell you what you want. So if you're feeling depressed, if you're feeling anxious, ask yourself, what needs to change in my life? And sometimes that's really important. So for me, I realized something needed to change in my life. And it had to do with this question about what was going to be meaningful. Here I was, I had my child, I was a parent, I had this career, but I felt like something was kind of missing.
0: Lori called the dean at Stanford, where she had been in med school. Maybe I should do psychiatry. Lori suggested.
1: And she said, you know, I think if you do psychiatry, you're going to be doing a lot of med management and you have a baby and you're going to have a toddler while you're going through residency. Why don't you get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and do the work that you want to do?
0: Part of studying to become a therapist is practicing on real people with real problems. And Lori Gottlieb vividly remembers her first session sitting in the therapist chair.
1: I was working in this clinic and this woman comes in and she says to me, you know, all the typical things you'll hear about depression, like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm just crying all the time. But I have this great life. You know, I I have this great career. I have this great boyfriend. I have, you know, all these things of all these people who love me and I can't stop crying and I don't know what's wrong. And I'm now I'm not performing at work and I can't figure out what's happening and then she just starts crying, and I've never sat in a room in that context of being the, you know, I'm the trainee, the therapist, um, and and she's just crying, and she is bawling, and you know, it wasn't like a warm up, you know, where someone sort of like there are a few tears, and then they sort of you know start crying, and they're really crying. She was just crying hysterically. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know, do you look at the person so that they know that you know, you're know you paying attention? Or do you not look at the person because they're going to be self-conscious or they're going to feel like you're staring at them? I really had no idea how to sit with a person who was that depressed. And so I didn't know what to say. And finally, I just said, it sounds like you've been really depressed. And the minute I say it, I think, no, duh. You know, like, she's going to think I'm the most (laughs) incompetent person ever. She's going to ask for a new intern. I'm going to get fired from the gig on the first day. Um... (laughs) I was really worried. There was that moment. I'm catastrophizing the scenario. Like, what? You know, that was the stupidest thing ever said in the history of the mental health profession. But it turned out (laughs) that that was exactly what she wanted to hear. She said, "Yes, that's exactly what it is. Nobody knows," and that began our relationship.
0: Wow, first one out of the gate. That's what you got.
1: Yeah, yeah. But it was so interesting to me. It was such a wake up call that you know. why is it that we're so hesitant to label this, to say what it is? In fact, it's so normalizing when people hear that, yes, I am not alone in this. There is a thing that is going on with me, and now I can be understood.
0: In uh, in my book, I, I write about the the day that I was diagnosed being one of the happiest days of my life because I was like, oh, my God, it's not me doing something wrong. I'm not bad. I'm not weird. I'm just, I have a thing. That, that is not the same thing as me.
1: Right, That's right. Huge. I mean, it's like, imagine if you had a heart condition and people were like that, you know, well, we don't know what that is. <laughs> and you're just like, I can't right, be the only right. one who's experiencing this. They're like, no, it just, I don't know why you're having, you know, this, these chest pains. We don't we don't really understand why you're having these chest pains. It must maybe be you. Maybe you should
0: smile more and you won't have such chest pains. And yeah, go maybe for a walk and rub then your, your heart.
1: <laughs> rub your heart. Give it massages.
0: A lot of times, people think that if they didn't find the right career path by, like, age 25, it's too late. Often, it's only after living a while, figuring out who you're not, that you can spot the little arrows guiding you to who you are. Lori Gottlieb had been a TV executive, med student, journalist, and a pest to UPS drivers before she was a therapist.
1: And it sounds really obvious in hindsight, but that was exactly what I wanted to do because every job that I did, again, was about story and the human condition. And I went from telling people's stories as a journalist to helping people to change their stories as a therapist. And I still do both. I have this hybrid career where I write and I have a clinical practice. And, uh, you know, it all makes sense, I think, even though the telling doesn't necessarily make sense. it, It very inherently makes sense to me in terms of what I want to do and what's meaningful to me.
0: Lori writes the Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic. She's written a lot for The New York Times, Time Magazine. She's written three books. It's so interesting that you mention the idea that your your mind is telling you what you should be doing and so much of like just listening to a truth that you might have already figured out, but it just hasn't made its way to the conscious mind. Because often that's, the, I feel like the depression is forming that barricade between, you know, you telling yourself the right thing to do and you being able to listen and act on it. Because you think, well, if it's, if it's a thought coming from my head, it must be a dumb, stupid, <laughs> worthless thought. And, uh, and it's, it's interesting that once that depression started to lift, you could listen to that voice and, and act upon it.
1: I think too, we need to understand whose voice we're hearing. So sometimes the voice that is truly ours is the quietest voice and the one that we're not paying enough attention to. And those other voices, those, the voices of, you know, just bullying oneself, those voices generally are not the voices that we were born with. They're the voices that we heard out in the world that we've internalized. And in fact, there was a, a, patient that I had in therapy where she was so clearly so mean to herself in her head and she didn't realize it so I said I want you to write down everything that you are saying to yourself for three days and then I want you to come back next week and we'll talk about it and so she comes back the next week and she has this sheaf of papers right and and she says um She starts to read and she's like, I can't read this. I can't read this. I am so horrible to myself. And then she started reading it and they were things like, you know... um oh, you're so stupid for making that mistake. Or, oh, God, you look terrible today. Or, you'll never get that. Or, you know, this person must, you know, this person's looking at me weird. Or, you know, like, just how unkind, how completely unkind we can be to ourselves. We don't realize that not only would we never say this to someone we cared about, we wouldn't believe it about someone we cared about. So if that person made a mistake, we wouldn't say, oh, that person's a stupid idiot. (laughs) We wouldn't think that. We'd think, oh, yeah, they made a mistake. That like no big deal, yeah, but we make a mistake, and we're like, Oh my God, you know, you you're not fit to be alive so so those are the kinds of voices that get the most kind of attention um. And so we need to pay attention to that because a lot of depression is, is like these voices that are not really our true voice. There are these voices that came from elsewhere. It's kind of like you're listening to this like horrible radio station, right? And it's like change the dial, you know, turn to another station, turn to the kind station. Why do you have to listen to the beat me up station? Why are you listening to that?
0: But the antenna is built right into your head, so the signal's really strong.
1: But people don't know that you can actually change the station, that you can actually push the button and change the station. All you have to do is push the button and change the station. I'm not saying it's easy. It, yeah. you, you know, it has no, to be really no. intentional. But once you get used to listening to the other station, you will not go back to that other station. You will choose not to go back to the other station because all of a sudden now you're wired differently. It, it really is a process of neurological rewiring.
0: Lori is going to talk about ending up in the other chair, the one for the patient, here in a little bit. Her experiences in the therapist chair, combined with the writing background, made her want to set some things straight in the form of her latest book.
1: I really wanted to show people through the book what therapy really is and what it isn't, because I think that there are so many misconceptions about what therapy is. And in the media, it's sort of this thing that people make fun of, and um, I think a lot of people don't go to therapy because they imagine that you're going to go to therapy and you're going to talk about your childhood ad nauseum and you're never going to leave. And that's what therapy is. And therapy is actually very much focused on the present. It, of course, it you know, we talk about how the past informs the present, but we also talk about how the present informs the future. And, uh, you know, I think that all of those things things are important when you're in the room. And like you said, the relationship with your therapist is the most important factor in the success of your therapy. It actually matters more. And study after study shows this. It matters more than the modality that the person is using, the number of years of experience they have. Um, You know, all of those things matter. But They don't matter as much as the relationship. And so, yes, we are being human in the room. I say at the beginning of the book that my greatest credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race. But at the same time, we're being very intentional about how we're trying to help somebody, about what we say, when we say it, timing and dosage, right? So you can say something to someone that maybe it's too early and it will backfire. So you want to make sure your timing is right. And dosage, how much are you going to say at once? What are they ready for? Do you have to kind of make sure that you um, kind of plant some seeds and let them, you know, let them kind of sit for a little bit, you water them, and then you plant some more seeds, and then you water them, and then eventually something blossoms.
0: I I like the idea of talking about what therapy isn't, because I think that we could maybe you and me together, Lori. I think we can dispel some things that maybe have scared people away from it or at least given people a distorted view. I mean, one thing that that I often point out to people is therapy isn't something that is done to you. You're not a car going into the shop to get a new muffler. You're you're an active participant in it and it's a skill that that you have to hone and that you have to work at and that you have to get better at because it is it is a unique situation it's a human situation but I remember thinking like okay who is this person supposed to be in relation to me and it sort of felt like a combination of a, a best friend and a vending machine <laughs> it's <laughs> It's like, I'm supposed to really open up to this person, but I'm supposed to get something out of this thing, too, whether it's a a Dr. Pepper or a resolution of my issues with my
1: dad. See, so therapy is a place where you have to be ready to work. So when people come in, I'm interested not just in why are they there, but I want to know why now. Why this day, this week, this month, did they call me when maybe this has been going on for Months, years, decades—is um, so that I,
0: your opening question?
1: I, 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 I'm not necessarily gonna gonna ask that. I'm gonna ascertain that through the conversation, so so I can figure out, you know, why why did they decide? You know, why are they sitting here now? What made them pick up the phone? And and I think that's really important because I'm not only looking for what's not working, but I'm scanning for strengths. I want to know something happened that was positive that made them say, "I need to go talk to somebody." So that's always important. And I think that they – I also am looking for are they ready to work? I like to say that insight is the booby prize of therapy, that you can have all the insight in the world. But if you don't make changes between sessions, if you don't make changes out in the world, the insight is useless. So somebody will say – oh, yeah, you know, now I understand why, um, you know, I had this fight again with my with my partner, and now I understand exactly why I do that. And I'll say, well, did you do something different? Well, no, but now I understand why I did it. Well, <laughs> you know, you're not really using the therapy well. So it's, it's about making those changes. It's about saying, okay, not only do I understand something about myself, but I'm going to have to go outside of my comfort zone and do something different from what I normally do so that something will change in my life. And it's really hard. It's really hard to change, but it's also so worth it. So if people are not willing to work, um, those aren't the kind of people that I see in my practice.
0: I think it's instructive in the book, and I think it's instructive to think about as a patient, like how can can I get the most out of this uh, given that I'm I'm relating to another person here and I mean I I had an experience where I was I was telling my therapist about a dream I had and then I thought oh wait nobody socially wants to ever hear about your dreams it's the most boring story you can tell somebody but then I thought oh wait this is a therapist so maybe maybe it's okay to say these things um, how much of it is sort of figuring out who the therapist is, how much of it is incumbent on the patient to figure out who the human being is serving as therapist in order for you to get the most out of it?
1: Well, I think that fear of boring your therapist is pretty common. And one of the things that I think people have said after reading the book is that now they feel so much better about knowing um, you know, how therapists feel about that, which is that people are inherently interesting the only time that they're boring is when they are trying to hide from you, when they're trying to distract you. So they're like, look over here. Here's this story. Look over here. Here's this story. Look over here. And they won't let you see them. And that gets really boring. It's like, this is not a cocktail party. You're not here to entertain me. The most interesting thing you can do is show me the truth of who you are. So, if I can't get in with that person and if they keep trying to hide from me, I'm going to talk about that in the room with them. I'm going to say, you know, I, I'm confused. Why, I want to understand why you're telling me these stories. What is the meaning of this story? Um, You know, people also think when I look at the clock that maybe I'm bored. I'm not. When I look at the clock, it's because there's a rhythm to a session. So, you know, in the beginning, someone's talking about whatever they're talking about. And then in the middle, you're working through it. And then if they're going through something really intense at that moment, I need to know how much time I have to kind of button them back up before they go back out in the world because I don't want them to carry all of that pain you know, it's like okay, they're they're talking about something incredibly traumatic, and I'm like, well, our time is up. You know, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do that to people, um, and so you, and also, it won't help them make use of what we just talked about if we don't kind of have some kind of conversation about what this means as they go back out into the world after our session. So. I think that a lot of what I'm trying to do in the book is to say, this is what this relationship, this therapeutic relationship really looks like. And I think it's made a lot of people much more open to the possibility of going and talking to someone in that capacity.
0: Remember when you were a kid and you'd see your teacher at like the grocery store and it was weirdly fascinating because it's out of context in your world for me getting a therapist to talk about what she's thinking over in her chair is kind of like that so I wanted to make the most of it with my questions Are you able to hold on to this idea that people are inherently interesting or are some people's problems just boring <laughs> like I mean you must have a human response when someone's just like going on and on you're like oh god this you're fine this isn't a big deal boring um or does that never cross your mind
1: I worried about that when I was an intern because I thought, you know, how will I go from somebody who has a very, very um you know something that anybody out on the street would say oh wow that's that's huge you know somebody has cancer somebody you know ha- was abused as a child whatever it might be and then somebody saying like my husband won't initiate sex you know so how do you how do you go from from those things and and what i learned was that there's really no hierarchy of pain pain is pain and i think that often the presentation of the pain like my husband won't initiate sex or whatever it might be it's, there's something deeper there, which is what is it like to feel rejected, unloved, shunned, alone? That's very real and serious and relatable. And so, um, you know, in the book, I there's a young woman that I'm seeing and she's she's dying of cancer. And then I go from her to like this this young woman in her twenties who keeps hooking up with the wrong guys, including a guy in the waiting room at one point. And, you know, and so we're dealing with sort of like these very different life situations. Um and and both of them, to me, they were both dealing with very serious pain. And the woman who kept hooking up with the wrong guys was dealing with, you know, a lot of pain from her past that was making her recreate the situation over and over in her life. So I really feel like people minimize their own problems and that's why they don't get help or they don't talk to their friends about it because they think, well, I have a roof over my head and food on the table. So, yeah, you know, I'm feeling sad and I'm crying. But, you know, compared to, you know, people wherever, um, you know, whatever, you can fill in the blank here what people do, how they how they rationalize, you know, why they shouldn't be feeling how they're feeling. Um, You know, they say, well, I'm not going to talk about it with anyone. And that's the worst thing you can
0: do. Okay, in just a moment, we're going to move Lori Gottlieb to the other chair. Her story as a client, a patient, and eventually we'll come to a kind of chair synthesis. Lori's life explodes and the therapist goes to a therapist in just a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses. Not just depression, all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having some laughs on this show occasionally. It's a way of dealing with depression. You tell some stories, maybe you have some laughs. It's a way of maybe demystifying depression a bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's serious. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It can be an awkward conversation, but MakeItOkay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say or not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to MakeItOK.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thanks so much to health partners and to make it okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Back with Lori Gottlieb, author of the book, Maybe You Should See Someone, subtitled A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. You went into therapy at some point uh, during, I guess, probably the early-ish years of of uh, of being a therapist? Yes. How, how far into your career did all this happen?
1: Yeah, I was a new therapist at the time. I was a relatively new therapist. Okay.
0: And if you could, tell us the, the circumstances by which uh, you came to reach out.
1: So... Uh, I was in a relationship with um, the person that I thought I was going to marry and we, um, you know, that was our plan. We were supposed to move in together. Um, We, he had just checked with his HR department to make sure my son could, you know, get when we got married, get on his uh, health insurance. And then he informs me that he has decided that he can't live with a kid under his roof, for the next 10 years, that kid at the time was my eight year old and um, who had not been hiding in the closet the whole time we were dating. <laughs> so my version of the story, and I very intentionally say my version of the story was that, um, you know, what my friend said, my friend said, oh, he's a sociopath. Like, who does that? <laughs> you know, Who does that to someone after dating them and, and, and talking about getting married and all of that? He's a monster. Um, he's a monster, right? Um, You know, you dodged a bullet, um, you know, all those kinds of things. And, I fully expected that when I went to therapy, that my therapist would say exactly the same thing, and I would feel better because of it. And I talk in the book about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. Idiot compassion is what we do with our friends. We validate their story. We go along with their story in the guise of under the guise of support. We say, "Yeah, he was awful," you know, like you're you're so lucky this happened. Thank God this happened. You know all those things. Um, You know he's a jerk. And what a therapist will do is they'll offer wise compassion. They'll hold up a mirror to you and help you to see something about yourself that maybe you haven't been able or willing to see. And that's exactly what happened when I went to therapy. I wasn't there because of a breakup. I was there because of really depression, um, really about this time in my life where I was, I was lacking meaning in a way that I had started to look for when I went back to school to become a therapist. And one of the first things I said when I came to therapy, as I was going through the whole story and crying about it, and I said, you know, and now I you know, I spent all these years dating him, and I wasted all this time, and half my life is over. And my therapist glommed onto that phrase, half my life is over. And that became what the therapy was about, it was about, well, what do you want to do in this next half of your life?
0: what was your state of mind going into those sessions after the breakup with your boyfriend? Like how, how are you presenting? I guess I should say.
1: Well, not well. (laughs) And I I say that because it's funny. So the book has now been on the New York Times list for nine months, right? So so lots of people are reading it. But I thought when I wrote it that maybe three people would read it. So I did not edit how I appeared in those first sessions when I was writing the book. (laughs) I did not clean myself up. Um, And I think that's why so many people are reading the book, because I didn't clean myself up, because they're so raw. They're so real. And I think that's what people relate to. So when you say, how did I present myself? Exactly as I wrote in the book, which was, I was a mess. And yet I was, again, that very functional depression. I was great at work. I was great out in the world. Um, It was really after, and I was great in front of my son. It was after he went to bed at night, you know, me sort of like lying in the fetal position, um, just being unable to sort of like cope with what had happened.
0: Was it fear? Was it Anger was it grief? like like what, how, what words would you choose well, to describe the, the feelings that put you in the fetal position?
1: Yeah, I, I would say all of this I, it was the shock because I, I, you know I think there are different kinds of grief, right? Um, I think there's there's the grief of you expected something to happen and you're going through the grieving process and you're kind of emotionally preparing for it, and you're grieving as it's happening. This was like one day it was, here's my future." And then the next day it was like, "Whoa, plot twist. <laughs> and, um, you know, a completely different future than I had been imagining for the past few years. And so it was the shock of that.
0: Now, remember that Lori was a working journalist and author this whole time. And this sudden breakup came along at the same time as a major writing project.
1: I was supposed to be writing a happiness book, ironically enough. Um, so I was <laughs> I was under contract to be writing a book about happiness. And I ended up calling it the miserable depression-inducing happiness book because the, the fact of writing that book was making me depressed. It felt so irrelevant to anything that I was seeing in the therapy room. I think that when you become a therapist, you realize that Happiness is beside the point. I don't mean that we don't want to be happy. I mean that happiness as a byproduct of living our lives in a way that is meaningful, a way that is fulfilling, is a worthy goal and something that we all want. But happiness as the goal in and of itself is a recipe for disaster, depression or no depression. It just is. So I was trying to write this book that it just felt inauthentic to me. And it wasn't until I went to therapy with Wendell, Wendell the therapist in the book, that he was kind of like... Um, did you get a second opinion? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like is this? And and I, I actually just did this TED talk, which is about how how we're all we all have these stories that we come in with, and we are unreliable narrators of our own lives. So part of it is that we don't really tell. We think we're telling the truth, but actually we're just telling the truth as we see it. That there's a whole other version of the story that we need to be open to. And so when Wendell said, "Did you get a second opinion?" I would fight him on that. Like you know nothing about the publishing business. Um, I can't. And I had so much shame, too. I think that a lot of depression is rooted in shame. So what happens is you feel like I'm going through this thing. I can't talk about it with anyone. I told no one that I wasn't writing this book, right? People would say, how's the book going? Oh, it's going. It's going, I would say. I was like the, the closet gambler who gets dressed for work every day and then kisses her family goodbye and then goes to the casino instead of the office. Right. And my casino was like Facebook, um, you know, like whatever it was, not writing the book.
0: Any distraction you could find.
1: Right. And so when it wasn't until I went to therapy after this breakup that I finally started to face all the things in my life that, that weren't working, that I was too ashamed to talk about with anybody else. Because again, on the outside, it looked like I had it all together.
0: The happiness book never got written because it didn't work. Realizing that, through therapy, let Lori move on through a lot of stuff that had never been true to who she was and what she wanted. And that helped her depression because she reclaimed more agency over her own life.
1: We think of depression as there there are people who are depressed and they're really not functioning. And then there are so and people are very aware that they're depressed. And then there are kind of like the the, the walking depressed, right? Like walking pneumonia. It's like the people who are really functional while they are depressed. That is exactly how I was at that time.
0: In your sessions that you describe with your therapist uh It seems like he has a lot of that sort of therapist magic where, you know, you'll go on and on talking about something and then he'll ask like a three word question and then it sort of opens everything up. It's this sort of like mystic quality. And I've been in rooms with therapists where people do this, too. Um is that how do you learn how to do that? It's a really, I, I hesitate to call it a trick because it's more profound and wise than a trick. But um, is, does that just come from a detachment from the situation? And as a therapist, being a, a, a new set of eyes on this, they can see it in a, a clearer, different way.
1: It comes from learning how to listen. So when I'm listening to somebody in the therapy room, I'm not. Just listening to what they're saying. I'm also listening for what they're not saying. So it's sort of like I'm listening for the music under the lyrics. The lyrics are the content of what they're saying, the story that they're telling. The music is what is the underlying struggle or pattern that they're describing as they tell me this story? And that's what I'm going to focus on. So when I respond to them, I'm not going to ask something necessarily about the content of what they're saying. I'm going to ask one of those questions that you see. You see examples of that in the book a lot where I'm going to ask one of those questions about the process, about what is the meaning of this story? Why are they telling me this story? Why is this significant at this moment? And that's usually going to open up a different conversation for us than, you know, going on and on about someone's, you know, partner or mother-in-law or child or um, boss or whatever it is.
0: Did you feel like a therapist in those sessions or did you just feel like a a regular person?
1: I think in the beginning I was very self-conscious because I was a therapist and I felt like I wanted to seem more together than I really was. And very quickly, you know, that that went out the window because, A, you can't really pretend for very long. Um, If you're with a good therapist, as I was, um, you know, the mask comes off very quickly. And, And I think that, you know, a lot of people come in with the mask, even when they're not therapists. So a lot of people will come into my office and they think that they they want to be liked they want me to respect them and they think that the way that I will like them or respect them is if they seem like they're higher functioning than maybe they are at the moment they came in and that just not true so I think when I was with Wendell in the beginning when he would ask me questions I try to answer them in the way that I knew would make me look a little bit more together <laughs> than I really was um, but then very quickly you know I was I was just a person in the room and and I think that's in order to get something out of the experience that's what you have to be.
0: It can be really scary, though, like if, you know, you're going in and even if it's a therapist that you that you hit it off with. And on this show, we often compare looking for a therapist to dating like, you know, someone someone can be perfectly nice and you just don't hit it off. But even if you do hit it off to open yourself up like that uh, to someone, you know, who you don't even know all that well and certainly don't know as a person much at all. How do you do that? Like, what advice can you give to people to lay down arms enough to really get something out of those sessions?
1: Well, what you said is so true that just because a therapist is a good therapist doesn't mean they're the right therapist for you. So often... Um, you know, people want to go to the therapist that their friend is going to and their friend loves that therapist and they're like, I'm not really seeing it. Um, it It is like, you know, it's the same reason that you're not married to their, their partner, right? <laughs> right? It's like that might be a good partner for them, but it might not be the partner that you would choose or that's a good fit for you. So, I think that when you go in, I always tell people before they come in, it's a consultation. You know, it's like I think a lot of people imagine that you go to see a therapist and suddenly you're in therapy with them. That's not true. You you go in and and, you know, you're not necessarily going to like – open up everything in that first session, it's it's really a conversation about, here's who I am, here's what's going on in my life. Um, you know, and it's about how do you guys interact with each other? Do you feel understood by this person? Do you feel like this person kind of gets it, even though they have a lot to learn about you? And then if you feel that way, go back for a second session. Again, you're not in therapy with the person, even then, go back for many sessions. If you're not, if you're feeling like something is, is not, working, bring that up in like the second or third session. A lot of people will just disappear. And, you know, you can ghost your therapist, but but maybe you'll learn something by having that conversation. You might learn, A, that there's something going on with you. Um, and maybe you're going to learn a lot in this therapeutic relationship. Or you might learn, actually, my instincts are right. This is not the right therapist for me. But I learned a lot about myself by showing up and having that conversation with the person and saying, you know what, this isn't right for me, and I'm going to go look for someone else.
0: But how do you let, how do you let the guard down, though? Like do you, and I mean, I guess I could ask in the context of the work you've done, like mm-hmm. if you've experienced patients who have a guard up, how were they able to let that down? Or is it incumbent upon the therapist to knock it down?
1: I think that as a therapist, you need to learn how to speak the person's language. And I think that's really important. So therapy is not one size fits all, even with the same diagnosis. Um, One depressed person looks very different from another depressed person. So I never want to lose a person behind a diagnosis. Um, And and depression is complicated. Any diagnosis is complicated. It's It's not one thing. So I think that it's incumbent upon me to allow the person the space to be who they are in the room and to be where they are, you know, like emotionally where they are. And over time, they will start to feel comfortable and start to talk about the things that they need to talk about. It's incumbent on me to ask the right questions at the right time. It's incumbent on me to hold back when I know they're not ready for something. So there's a lot of gauging, you know, sort of what, what the where the person is and really being attuned to where they are. It reminds me a little bit of um I used to when I was in high school I was a competitive chess player, which sounds super nerdy, but it was really good training for being a therapist because it's kind of like you make a move and you see how the person responds and you might need to think five moves ahead and you also might need to recalibrate based on something that they do. So I think that that's my job, but it's also I think it the person's job to say, am I here because I just want to um, have somebody to talk to, which you can find that out in the world, or am I here because I really want to understand what I can do to make my life better, given my circumstances, given that I'm suffering from depression, given that, um, you know, whatever might be going on in one's life, what are the things that I can change? What are the things that I can do differently? Those are really important questions to ask. You you can't just go to therapy and expect that, um, you know, like you're going there and the therapist is going to offer you some magic and you're going to leave and everything's going to be okay.
0: Yeah, you'd have to book an appointment with a wizard if you want that.
1: Right, and I think some people and expect us to be don't wizards. take your insurance.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Very few insurance plans cover sorcery. Um, what do you know now about? Mental illness and mental health that you wish you knew a long, long time ago,
1: well, I don't like the the idea of sort of mental illness um as as separate from the rest of the human condition. I mean, certainly people have um conditions that are that are we you know we give them a diagnosis. Um, but I also feel like there's a there's like this broad spectrum of humanity, and I think that people have a lot of misconceptions about what it means to have emotional struggles that they don't they don't understand what it is people are scared of it people are scared to talk about it people think that if you talk about it you're you know you make it worse or you're going to make the person feel uncomfortable i i I guess what i want people to understand is just that it's like talking about anything else and and that it's just a normal part of of being a person in the world and Um, I hope that the more that we talk about this, I, you know, I think that we've made a lot of progress, but I think we have so much more progress to make.
0: Here's what I want you to know about therapy. It might work for you. It might not. You might be ready to tackle things and find the right person to pull it out of you or not. But if you're hurting and you want to do some work at figuring out why and what to do about it, why the hell not just give it a chance? Lori Gottlieb's book is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. It's available where fine books are sold. Because it's a fine book. My book, our book, The Hilarious World of Depression... A memoir and a history of what created this show is available for pre-order in those same fine places. On our next episode, Dave Holmes was a star VJ on MTV, a huge success, working his dream job and living his dream life. Sorta. I was doing a show called Say What Karaoke. It was a Monday through Friday half-hour, like vari- like a, you know, you would do a karaoke version of you know Blink 182 song or whatever. I remember. Being in, like, in my dressing room between, let's say, show four and five of the day. And a voice in my head saying, you're going to go back out on that stage and start crying. You're, like, this is all going to end today. Like, you're going to go out there and mess this up permanently on camera today. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Our production team for this episode includes Chrissy Pease, Christina Lopez, Phyllis Fletcher, Veronica Rodriguez, John Miller, and Corey Shreppel. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, Confidential Help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting that conversation can be awkward, but Make It OK has tips on what to say, what not to say. It has stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. HilariousWorld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter. And come visit us on Facebook. Search for the name of our show or Thwadballs. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know. Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know.